0: Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Collective Insights and the work we do at Neurohacker Collective is made possible from the support of our community and the sales of our product, Qualia. Qualia is a comprehensive mental enhancement supplement designed to improve focus, mood, and flow state. Learn more about qualia at neurohacker.com and use coupon code Collective Insights for $20 off your first order.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Neurohacker Collective podcast, Collective Insights. My name is Daniel Schmachtenberger. I'm with R&D here at the Collective. We are delighted to have Dr. Bruce Lipton with us today. Bruce Lipton is an eminent cell biologist and uh, is actually popularly known for uh, helping to popularize the understanding of epigenetics and possible... Um, consequences of where epigenetics could take medicine and mind-brain medicine into the future. Um, His training was as a cell biologist, and he's done work with NIH and with Stanford and University of Wisconsin and a lot of uh, very reputable institutions, did some of the work in early genetic engineering and stem cell work and muscular dystrophy. And all of this brought him to some very interesting insights about The nature of genetics genetic transcription and the uh, relationship between what the genome is and what is actually expressing what physiology is and um you know it actually took him into a place of very deep inquiry into the nature of what is consciousness what is physics how do they interface the nature of mind brain medicine so we're delighted to have you here today with us bruce and excited to get into this dialogue
2: I am so happy to be here because I know this is an audience that uh, can appreciate some of the more salient features of uh, the scientific foundation rather than tell me what it means. Uh, uh, And I love it because uh, I got to this place uh, not through wishful thinking, not through new age, anything. I wasn't even a spiritual person at all. I had nothing to do with it uh, and ended up completely transformed uh, through a knowledge uh, imparted by the cells that I was working with for years, and it was like, oh my god, uh, an insight that uh, th- there's a lot of interesting aspects of it. Uh, this is uh, about 50 years ago when my seminal experiments on stem cells uh, changed my life, uh, and I saw a new science that wasn't named at that time, uh, how environment was uh, controlling genes. Uh, and that was way ahead of the curve. As a matter of fact, all of my colleagues thought I was a totally weirdo kind of thing, except for, hey, my experiments were repeatable every day. Come in the lab. I'll show you again and again. Uh, but it didn't conform to their belief at the time in genes uh, because uh, my work really involved how the environment uh, was controlling genetics. And I mean controlling genetics, not just activating genetics, but actually rewriting the code live time uh, in a mechanism. And, um, so uh, should, uh, can I just import the fundamental experiment that yeah. changed my life? Uh, okay. Uh, first of all, recognize I'm teaching in a medical school uh, a concept called genetic determinism, Uh, which the public is still imbued with, but science has let that go, except the public is still caught in the belief of genetic determinism, and that is genes turn on and off and regulate the characteristics of your internal and external life experiences. Uh, and, And when teaching that back in those days, then what I was teaching, and I see it from a whole different perspective today, is victimization. In other words, you train medical students to understand that all these diseases are caused by genes going out of control and all that stuff. Uh, and then they tell the patient. And then, of course, the patient goes like, oh, my God, well, I didn't pick these genes. And I can't change the genes. And the genes are apparently controlling who I am. my I, God, I'm a victim of my heredity. Uh, and I'm teaching that, Okay. But in the laboratory, I was working on stem cells. Now, you got to remember, this is uh, 50 years ago. Uh, there were only a handful of us in the world that even knew what the heck a stem cell was. That wasn't a big topic at that time. And I, had, uh, I was in the right place at the right time to uh, be cloning stem cells back uh, in 1967. Now, uh, just for those in the audience, very quickly, a stem cell is an embryonic cell. Uh, we change the name at the moment a person is born. <laughs> just before they're born, uh, the cell is oh, that's an embryonic cell. And uh, right after they're born, same cell is called stem cell. Uh, the significance is that uh, a human body is not a unity; it's a community of fifty trillion citizens, uh, sentient citizens called cells. I say the word Bruce. that that, that is actually a word for a community. <laughs> Bruce is fifty trillion cells uh and, and so the relevance about that is um the cells have lifetimes to them some of them turn over very very quickly uh skin cells are continuously being sloughed um the the entire lining of the digestive tract is replaced every three days hundreds and hundreds of billions of cells every three days you are losing them and it's like well, how long can you live if you can't replace them and the answer is not very long so a very significant factor for everyone out there, if you're watching or listening to this, uh, you have stem cells because the function of stem cells is to keep the body intact as you're losing uh, billions, hundreds and hundreds of billions of cells every day. So a stem cells is an embryonic cell, can replace anything. Here, Here's my scientific stuff. I isolate one stem cell and put it in a petri dish all by itself, that's cloning. Uh, it divides every 10, 12 hours. So first one, two, four, eight, doubling, doubling, doubling after a week, 30,000 cells in the Petri dish. Most important fact is they're all genetically identical because they came from the same parent. So I split the 30,000 cells into three Petri dishes. And, um, what I did was change the composition of the culture medium. Sidebar, culture medium is the equivalent of blood. If I grow human cells, I look at the composition of human blood, try to duplicate that in a lab synthetically called culture medium. I grow mouse cells, I look at mouse blood. So culture medium is synonymous with blood. But I make three versions because I'm synthesizing it, and I slightly change some of the chemistry in each of the three versions. Uh, So I have three petri dishes, genetically identical cells in all dishes, uh, but I feed them a slightly different version of growth medium, blood. (laughs) And in one dish, the cells form muscle. In the second dish, the cells form bone. In a third dish, the cells form fat cells. What controls the fate of the cells? Well, the first thing is this. They were all genetically identical. So I can't say one had different genes than the other or something was going on. It was the environment. Interacting with the cells and the cells interacting with the environment, that selected the genetic activity of the cells. So the genes did not make a decision as to what they should be. The genes responded to environmental signals as to what they should be activated or not. So first thing is this. Any concept of the term a gene turned on and a gene turned off is 100% fallacious. A gene has no self-actualization. A gene cannot turn itself on and off. A gene has no knowledge of what it is. A gene is a blueprint a linear molecular blueprint no different than a blueprint in an architect's office. I say, why is it relevant? Because I say you go into the architect's office, she's working on a, a, a blueprint, you say, is your blueprint on or off? And she'll look at you like, wait, you're crazy, it's a blueprint, there's no on and off. I go, precisely, a gene is a blueprint, has no on and off, okay? What the studies revealed is that the information from the environment is uh, perceived, and reacted to by controlling the genetics and behavior of the cell. Now, what's really interesting about this is um when I first showed this to my colleagues, which is, you know, this was when the the whole genetic industry was getting off the ground and everybody was like lemmings running towards that genetic gold mine somewhere, I'm the only guy standing on the side going, "Yeah, I don't th- I don't think it's the genes really. <laughs> I I think we should be looking at the environment at this." But the genetic thing was It was a vast movement. So uh, I just did my research. It repeated it all the time. And at some point I realized I I can't teach medical students anymore that people are victims of genes because the recognition is that the environment and the perception of the environment by the cell determines the genetics and behavior. So if you say genes control life, you're telling people they're victims, If you tell them the environment and your perceptions control life, you're giving them an opportunity for mastery. Why? I can change the environment. I can change my perception. And therefore, I can change my biology. I go precisely. Uh, This impacts Yes.
1: When you say perception, you're actually meaning something very specific at the level of a cell. And when you say the environment, so when you were doing this, the concept of the exposome didn't exist yet. The concept of epigenetics didn't exist yet. So... That, so that it's clear for listeners at a cellular level, what does perception mean?
2: A perception means that uh, since a cell is is in response to environmental information, then by definition, a cell must have a perception of the environment. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to read what's going on. Uh, and then uh, now to add a little interesting twist is, yeah, my, my liver cell has a perception of what's going on in the environment. I say, well, w- what's the environmental liver cell? I said it's like culture medium. It's the blood fluid. And then I go, yeah, but... Uh, the information in that blood fluid, where'd that come from? And I go, ah, the perception of the person. (laughs) Because their perception is translated into chemistry that goes into the blood and then controls the cell. So the cell doesn't see the real environment. The cell sees your nervous system's interpretation of that environment. Uh, And yet, since it doesn't see the real environment, it can only respond to the signals that are being sent by the nervous system at that time. Uh, you, You might be in fear when there was no reason to be in fear, but there was a, I'm in fear. I go, yeah, but your liver cell doesn't know there's no reason, the liver cell just knows you're in fear and makes the appropriate response. So then it's not just the perception of the cell, we bump it up, now it's the perception of the individual who's controlling the blood, culture medium, which signals control the behavior. So it's a cascade, and now we realize it starts at the top with perception.
1: I, I think this is a place where some people get hung up and uh, so let me just see if i um can disambiguate at the level of a cell uh perception is a receptor site right and the receptor yes. site is going to uh perceive some particular chemistry being in the blood or not etc and then it's going to trigger some actuator process
2: yeah. yes
1: now <clears throat> that the chemicals that it has receptors for might be things that aren't really affected by the nervous system that directly might be toxic exposure from the environment right might be metabolic byproducts might be nutrients that come from food and etc that's why i said
2: environment environment and perception
1: right because uh, it okay. also includes things like hormones and chemistry that are pretty top-down neuroendocrine controlled absolutely and so then when you say perception of the individual, this is where we get, uh, of their outer environment, this is where we get the ability to actually have faulty perception dynamics leading to a neuroendocrine cascade.
2: Absolutely, 100%. It's more or less a better word than I use in my lecture is interpretation. I say the nervous system does perception, but the mind does interpretation. And the relevance is, it's not the perception directly that controls it, it's the interpretation that is translated into the control. And that's where all of a sudden it says, oh my goodness, two people standing, standing right next to each other in the exact same environment have totally different uh, interpretations of what they see. One could be blissed out, and the other could be in fear of their life based on what, what they see individually.
1: And the blissed out versus fear is obviously different hormonal transmitter chemistry that is then affecting the blood as 100%. the
2: the, that, this the, uh, A simplification of this is is uh, the mind, uh, a lot of us uh, when we're young did something like paint by numbers, where you take an outline and then there's an outline of a picture and there are numbers, and the numbers correspond to paint, and then when you put the paint inside the numbers, you create the picture. Uh, to simplify it, the ultimate simplification, the mind is paint by numbers in reverse. First you put the picture in your mind, then the nervous system breaks it down into numbers, But those are the neurochemicals and the controls that go into the blood, which then go out, the controls go out and paint the body to match the image that was sent down. So whatever your image is, it changes the chemistry. Very simply, uh, I'll give two totally opposite ones. Uh, When a person opens their eyes and they experience uh, perception and interpretation of love, they release uh, dopamine, pleasure, They release vasopressin, which increases your attractiveness to your partner. They release oxytocin, which bonds you to your partner. And and very importantly, love causes a release of growth hormone. The net result? When people are in love, they glow, they're healthy, they're happy, they get the whole thing is working beautifully. Yeah, because the culture medium is infused with good stuff. I say, what happens if they open their eyes and they see something they fear? And I go, well, none of that chemistry is going to be released by the brain. What's going to be released by the brain are uh, stress hormones such as cortisol, inflammatory agents such as histamine. Uh, And I say, what's relevant? I say, if those are the chemicals in the blood, I can tell you what will happen because when I added those to my tissue cultures, guess what? The cells stopped growing. And if I keep that that culture medium in there with the stress hormones uh, uh, and uh, things like histamine at some point, it it actually could cause the death of the cells. Uh, And so now I realize, oh my goodness, the environment is controlling behavior and genetics. Love is assimilation. Take it in, okay? Taking things in is growth. Fear is protection. Close down. I say, ah, well, there's your problem, Uh, protection response is okay if it's a short little duration response. But when protection becomes uh, 24-7, 365, uh, now you're destroying the system because you're keeping it closed down and you're inhibiting growth and maintenance of the body. Uh, not to punish you, very simple point is if you're in fear, you're in fight or flight. And if you're in fight or flight, you need to have available at your momentary need, all the energy available in your body. Because if that saber tooth tiger is coming after you, you don't want to spend some of your energy on fighting bacteria (laughs) or, you know, fixing the gut. It's like, no, no, I want every bit of energy to run. So stress hormones shut down uh, growth maintenance and the immune system as not relevant in a fight-or-flight response. So when I added the stress hormones uh, to my uh, tissue culture dish, the cells shut down their growth and stopped growing.
1: It would be easy for us to think about the endocrine response independent of genetics or epigenetics, right? Just the cell functions differently in the presence of that hormone versus this hormone. Absolutely. But The next step is saying that that hormone is not only making the cell function differently while it's there, but if it's there often enough, long enough, that it can actually change genetic expression. So we haven't entered the concept of what epigenetics is, how DNA methylation or any of that works, so maybe that's useful now.
2: Okay, so uh, the cells are reading the environment, okay? Uh, And if they have the proteins in their cytoplasm to make a response to whatever their stimuli they're experiencing, uh, you don't need to engage the nucleus at all, okay? But if you need proteins that are programmed in the nucleus but are not available in the cytoplasm and the stimulus shows up, then the signal can't activate the proteins. The signal has to go to the nucleus and call up the blueprint to make the protein. The whole process of signal controlling the cytoplasmic behavior and the nuclear behavior is called signal transduction. That's the leading edge of science today. It's tracking how an environmental signal engages the cascade inside the cell. Uh, And epigenetics is that part of signal transduction where the signal is specifically going to the genetics. Because the signal can just go to the proteins, as you said. You don't need to engage the genes, okay? Uh, And uh, sidebar, what's the nature of life? This is the coolest thing. (laughs) A protein is a linear string, and there's a folding pattern built in, which is a sequence of amino acids. So although it synthesizes a linear string, once it's released from the ribosome, the protein folds itself up into an intricate 3D pattern determined by the amino acid sequence, okay? And I say, ah, so the what is responsible for the folding? I go, the charges inside the peptides, the positive and negative charges line up and you know repel or attract and then create the three-dimensional structure. So I say, ah, the structure of a protein is determined by the charge. Yes. If the environment changes the charge, the protein will restructure itself into a more balanced state based on the new charges. You go, so I go, that's the secret of life. Why? A protein in a cadaver is a structure. Yeah, there's the body of that cadaver, but there's no life. I said, where'd the life come from? When the proteins respond to an environmental signal, they adjust their structure uh, to accommodate the new energy. And as a result, adjusting the structure is movement, behavior. I say, ah. Life is proteins plus signals. And I go, absolutely. Uh, and, and I say, okay, so now the signals are specific to the proteins, and they're specific to the proteins in the uh, nucleic acid uh, uh, part of, the, of, the, of the, the nucleus with the chromosomes. Chromosomes are 50% DNA and 50% protein. And everyone, ever since Watson and Crick, and let me emphasize, Rosalind Franklin, the real founder of the double helix, uh, uh, stolen by Watson and Crick, uh, that once everybody focused, is on, focused on DNA, there was a second error. And the error came in here. And this error changed biology forever, and it's now having to be corrected. And that is this. They found that proteins were controlled by DNA. And they say, fine. And then they say, so what controls DNA? And this is where the whole thing went wrong. They said, oh, take a double helix, split it apart, have a single helix, and then put it in a beaker where the building blocks of nucleic acid are in there, the four bases. I said, what's the result of that? I said, if you incubate the single strand of DNA in a solution, it will create the complementary DNA strand. <gasps> DNA covers its own reproduction. So all of a sudden, the quest for how life works stopped. It said... DNA codes for the protein and DNA codes for itself and then everything comes from DNA and that's led us to the uh, the belief of the protein the information flow DNA RNA protein DNA at the top uh and, and I said well what's wrong I said it's an artifact because they had isolated DNA I go in the nucleus it's 50% DNA and 50% protein and, and I said, well, what about the protein? You know, that's what somebody asked after, you know, so many years of throwing away the protein and just working with DNA and same genes. And well, this is like, you, what the hell was the protein? Regulation. The protein is the code of regulation. We have the same number of genes. So the most primitive worm studied in biology, C. elegans. A worm about a half a millimeter long with 1,271 cells, got 20,000 genes. A human has 20,000 genes. It's like, oh, then we're not genetically superior. Not in genes, but in what was used to be called junk DNA. No, that's where the information is. How to build using the proteins that are created by the gene Once you have the protein, you need to assemble them and how they're organized, so keratin, a standard protein, is in your skin, flexible. Keratin is in your hair. A keratin is a fingernail or claw. I go, same keratin gene? Yeah, but how it's assembled is in the so-called junk DNA, which is regulated by the proteins. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my god, the genes are not controlling themselves, they're in combination with the proteins. And the proteins are responding to the environmental signal. And so all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, it changes the whole meaning. Genes have no ability to turn themselves on or off. They're regulated by the proteins. The analogy I give in my lecture is uh, old fashioned days uh, when uh, broadcast wasn't on the TV uh, in the evening, they put what was called a test pattern. And the test pattern was a broadcast. So look, it's a pattern, a gene. Test patterns is a gene. I go, the dials on the television set, on and off, (laughs) volume, okay, contrast, color, uh, width, height, all those controls, right? I can manipulate all the controls and change the appearance of that pattern. I go, did I change the original pattern? Nope, nope. The broadcast is still exactly the same broadcast, but the dials and their influence can change the pattern, the color, the contrast, the focus, the width, the depth, whatever, okay? But without changing the original broadcast. Now, relevance. Epigenetics is the environment changing the dials on your DNA, the proteins. The proteins change the readout of the DNA, but they didn't change the DNA. So... For every gene, I could read the straight program or by adjusting the dials, I can change the appearance of that protein, the result, not changing the code, but changing the way the code is assembled. And I can create a minimum of 3,000 different versions of proteins from the same gene blueprint based on epigenetics epigenetic signals can say which gene is going to be activated and then how that gene is going to be expressed so uh, the keratin in, in a lion's claw and the keratin in my fingernail same keratin but how you use that keratin wasn't based on the gene it was based on what was called junk DNA now the most important DNA that's where the architectural plants are <laughs>
0: okay
2: uh, and, Yeah. so epigenetics mm-hmm. is how the environmental signals affect the proteins which are the dials that change the readout of dna so epigenetics is how environment controls gene not just on and off but gene expression to create thousands of variations per
1: gene so you just spoke to Um, a recursive process that sounds like it's actually a closed loop ring that is super fascinating where you say, okay, we've got proteins that are modulating the genome and genome that are creating proteins, right? So we have some sense of recursivity there, which brings up the concept of some kind of self-organization. And then when we, you know, you mentioned Protein folding as a result of changes in um, where charge is located, right? So that yeah. has to do with voltage and protein structures. Now, if we think about the definition of life from complexity science, Stuart Kaufman's definition, which is self-organization, self-replication, and completing thermodynamic work cycles, it and you, we put all this together... There's, this, there's still this very fascinating question of like, okay, so we have proteins that are affecting genetic expression. We have genes that are coding for proteins. We have an individual that's being affected by its environment, but is also then evolved to be able to act on its environment. Sp- speak to this whole self-organization recursivity process.
2: Okay. Now, basically it basically says this. The proteins are, are devices that create structure and function the structure and function required by a cell is directly connected to what's going on in the environment. <laughs> if the environment changes, I have, I have to accommodate those changes. Otherwise I can't stay static and have the environment be dynamic. Okay. Unless I completely encapsulate myself from the environment and shut myself down, but that would kill me. So the simple reality is I have to be able to know when to use a function, when to create a structure, and how that structure should be molded more or less to be functional. So I say but the genes make the structure and the the now that's the other part the protein part is defining how that structure is going to be adjusted but then you have to remember I said but the proteins only work based on the environmental signals coming in. So now the activity that's going to control the genes is now connected to the environmental signal If the signal doesn't come in, I'm not even going to engage the damn gene, okay? When the signals come in, it's going to determine how I'm going to sculpture that gene. I'll give you the best example in the world, the immune system. What's the point? I put a new molecule that's never been created on this planet ever, injected into your body, and three days from now, I will harvest from you protein antibodies that are so specific to that new molecule that would only recognize that molecule, and it didn't exist three days earlier. How'd that happen? And the answer is this. First, you activate a crude version of a protein that's built into the genetic repertoire, but it's crude. And if you assemble a crude version that can just temporarily hold on to that new structure, that's a starting point. says, okay, we're gonna start with that. And then what it will do through feedback with the environment over three days, it will create variations of that protein by changing some of the amino acids and then test those variations until you find the one that's even better. Then you say, okay, now I'm going to start with this one, make some variations until I find a better version of it. It goes through a a minimum of, it looks like seven uh, in, in one of the studies, seven changes in specific amino acids to accommodate the shape to conform to that new molecule. So
1: What's there's actually an evolution and natural selection of receptor binding?
2: This, that is evolution. Evolution is awareness. Awareness is to be able to read the environment. Every signal that shows up, if you can read that environmental signal, you have more awareness. So the more awareness you can put into a cell, the more intelligent the cell becomes. Okay. So you are speaking and
1: about go, a selection process between non random mutations at those various receptors.
2: Non random, that, that's, that's a more or less a joke in regard to, well, what percent of, uh, of random mutations can accommodate evolution? I go, infinitesimally small. A chance mutation almost inevitably the, either does nothing or is destructive. Very rare if anybody ever finds a chance mutation by accident, one single one that changed everything with the new science of epigenetics manipulating genes all of a sudden the, the 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 version of darwin drops out the window hey it was just a bunch of random accidents and that's how we got here to a lamarckian point of view that says there's a lockstep interaction between the organism and the environment so that the environment and organism uh, the, the organism stays uh, alive in a very changing environment by what reading this environment engaging functions that will keep it alive this is not chance This is a feedback mechanism. Before epigenetics, there was no feedback mechanisms. DNA was the cause. Epigenetics says, no, the environmental signal controlling the chromosomal proteins is the cause. And therefore, the mechanism of evolution was built in from the very beginning with the concept of epigenetics that says an organism can learn from the environment Making an antibody is an example of learning and memory. So learn by, by creating a receptor and then it keeps a gene for that final program locked into the system, new gene, new antibody. Learning, memory, evolution. That's what it's about.
1: And then so if an animal is exposed to a new molecule that they hadn't been exposed to before, they yes. developed a receptor for doing whatever it was, it was appropriate to do with it. You're saying that that would yes. actually change their genome. They would develop a gene for coding for that new protein. And then that Absolutely. Gene would be passed down to their offspring. So you're not saying that's not an epigenetic change. That's a genetic change.
2: Yeah. But epigenetic changes go for generations. And there's a point where they're translated into genetic changes over time of repetition. Okay, so that when they affect the epigenetics of a father with some chemicals, which they've tested, uh, they found that it will propagate at least three or four generations, the same epigenetic mechanism. So at some level, it starts to take on a more permanent structure. And at some point, the transition now is that you can take an epigenetically modified gene and program it in as as its own gene. And, and all of a sudden, the whole picture of evolution changes. It says evolution did not happen by accident. Evolution was a concerted effort to do what? Adapt to the environment, read the environment, and become conscious of that environment, which the most primitive organism is by definition. Consciousness means you're able to perceive a signal and make a, a directed response. <laughs> now you... Bacteria do this.
1: Okay? You're, of course, not precluding that gamma radiation could affect the DNA and cause a random mutation, and nope, if it nope, happens nope. to be adaptive, that that would be selected for? You're not precluding not, that. You're just saying that that's not sufficient.
2: Not, not excluding that at all. I'm just saying, if you're going to look at the percent where one of those events contributed to evolution versus the feedback mechanism, uh, it's minuscule, small. You know, it it could happen. I'm not saying no, for sure it can happen. I know that. I radiated my cells and altered them in a lab. I know that. But the reality is, will this propagate? No, not necessarily.
1: Not necessarily. So when you just said something interesting that I've never heard before, which is knowing that epigenetics is passed down. I've seen those studies up to 40 generations in humans where the methylation pattern or the histone pattern or the non-coding microRNA pattern passes down, right? Yes. Um, but that, that actually translates to changes in the base pairs themselves that at some point it becomes more efficient than keeping that gene with that methylation pattern to actually create a new gene. I have not heard that. So that no, is... No,
2: there is a feedback there. There's more current research. I will forward that to you because it's very important.
1: It's
2: very yeah, important. That's a big deal. You know, that that's, allows, allows something that's vital.
1: That's evolution, not, not through theory. breeding. What time? That's, that's a, That's evolution not through sexual selection.
2: No, that's that. This is completely somatic, even in its origin, okay. Hmm. And 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 the fact is, very quite it's quite significant, uh, uh, because um, the system cannot gamble. (laughs) So, in other words, we have an innate immune system. I said, Where the heck did the innate immune system come from? Well, originally, uh, we were immersed in a bacteria solution, some of them were good, some were bad, we had to identify them. And therefore, they created receptors to identify them. Then they can turn into DNA. And I go, well, so for example, plasmids and bacteria can become memory units in bacteria. And I say, yeah, put bacteria into a solution of oil, petroleum contaminants. Put a bunch of bacteria in there. Now, most of them are going to die. But there will be some who will adapt and create a plasmid which is a DNA, a little string, like a memory stick for this new protein. And not only can they put that plasmid back into the DNA at some point, into the chromosome, because it's extra chromosomal when it starts, but it can pass it on to all the other bacteria by uh, sending uh, plasmid viruses. That's what a virus was intended for, is... Communication on the positive side, what we've only looked at is viruses on the negative side uh, as damaging communication. It's like, yeah, but nature doesn't create just negative, there was a positive side to viruses. Uh, and the fact is, this viruses are the highest means of communication that exists in biology today, meaning for specificity. Mm-hmm. I got nerves, yeah, but they only connect to a small percent of my cells. Yeah, I have hormones. I can release them, but then they're exposed to all of the cells. How can I say I want more of these cells and I want less of these cells? What signal is possible to do that with specificity? Viruses. And so guess what? When they did the human genome, they found a lot of virus genes in there. And it's like, well, what are they doing in there? And the answer is now... We now are ma- we are making something. We- it's just coming on the forefront of where this is coming from. Uh, we make viruses. That's the highest level of communication in our in our community of of biology. They're called exosomes. Exosomes were like little pinched off pieces of of, t- uh, of cytoplasm from a cell. They thought they were just degenerative. Now they find no. The vast majority of these little pinched off things carry. Uh, RNA, microRNA, cytokines, uh, pieces of DNA. I say, what are they doing? They're interbody communications of specificity that can't exist anywhere else. Uh, a new insight: a cancer, a pre-cancer cell, wherever it forms, it could be in your toe. I don't care where it is. Will create exosomes that will go to a destination where the cancer will grow before the cancer cell gets there, feeding the cells around it, not feeding them, infecting them with exosomes that control the behavior of those cells to support an environment for cancer. What's the point? The intelligence of the system of cancer just happened to fall in somewhere It created a message and already sent it to the destination where it's going to proliferate. Man, there's no intelligence in here beyond anything of this genetic determinism, accidental mutations, chance. This is not chance.
1: (laughs) There's no chance in this. Okay, so let's come back to genetic determinism and the inadequacy of genetic determinism and let's say you yeah. know you're talking about cancer now we have oncogenes that we know are statistically correlated with a particular kind of correlated,
2: cancer. correlated correlated now right. i want to emphasize because you said the word and i want to emphasize that that is the most important word to get left out of the discussion because it has been replaced by causation and correlation and causation are not the same thing, but when you interchange them then genes are not correlated, genes become causative, and that changes the entire perception. Oh wait, perception adjusts my biology is like You put that wrong information into a person as a prognosis or diagnosis that you've got cancer, they believe it, that's the signal. The signal is what? The image of cancer. I go, then what? And I say, well, then the brain will manifest the chemistry to make a cancer. That's the opposite of the placebo effect. It's called the nocebo effect. The placebo effect is the positive side of, well, what about a positive idea about a drug? And I say, oh, well, then you're sending signals of positivity and healing. Did the drug do it? No, it was a sugar pill. And I go, oh, yeah, everyone goes positive thinking, positive result, placebo. And what they leave out of the discussion to me is more important. Negative thinking is equally powerful but works in the opposite direction. Negative thinking can cause any disease on this planet, and negative thinking can actually just kill you out of fear. And okay, the point so- about that is we, we just have to recognize the power of thinking, positive or negative. Uh, and I say, th- we have the BRCA1 gene, the breast cancer gene. Oh my God, oh my God, I, I got the BRCA1 gene. Uh, Angelina Jolie double mastectomy right away because I don't want to die like my mother and my grandmother. And she has a double mastectomy. And uh, based on what? Genes cause cancer. I got genes do not cause cancer. 50% of the women that carry this gene never get cancer. So, your word, and I'm, that's why I'm going off on this diatribe thingy right here because it's so important. The gene is correlated with cancer, but the gene does not, there is not one gene that causes cancer, but okay. they're correlated. And then that determines, well, what in your life is bringing this gene into action? That changes the game.
1: So, you said a lot of things in there I, I want to double click on. Let's. Yes. So if we take the BRCA gene and we take any gene, let's let's take APOE4 for a moment because it's one of the most highly statistically correlated, right? And so if we look at APOE4 and Alzheimer's, if someone's got a homozygous mutation on it, 75% correlation or something. Now, but what that means is, of course, that the, that gene is neither necessary nor sufficient as a cause, meaning some people have Alzheimer's express who don't have a homozygous mutation on that gene and some people who do have it don't have uh, Alzheimer's and yet 74% statistical correlation is high. So I would interpret that to mean it is part of a dominant causal cascade but it is a causal cascade that requires other activity like exposome dynamics and um, could not express. So then we want to find out you know, what is involved for it to express or not express. Yeah, is that.
0: Well-
2: yeah here here's an interesting story because it's a behavioral consequence that uh, they trained i forgot uh what organism it was some animal uh to uh have a fear response linked with an odor it was a Pavlovian thing uh and at some point then of course that organism learned when uh that odor showed up the fear response is going to be engaged right now, whatever is going to cause it. they then found that through mating, I think it was mice, that the offspring would never even experience that odor before. Once they experienced the odor, had the same response as the parent, okay? So all of a sudden it says, so what am I passing down? Well, I'm passing down behavior. In what form? Epigenetically controlled programs. And I say, and, and then we go into the issue, well, how many generations? As you said, we can go many, many generations, and yet there is recent information that says, yeah, it can go back in and become part of the genome at some period of time, uh, depending on how important it is for survival. The more important it is, the less I want to carry it around as a possibility, I want to carry it around as a surety, I, I'll make it a gene at that point. Okay? So th- this, is, this is part of the evolution. Now, I think what's most interesting about this is. that I would really like to take a little tangent on if it's okay with you, is so we talk about the signal uh, being perceived and then a response connected to that signal. So there's a stimulus response. Uh, This is what's going on. So when I started to do this research originally 50 years ago, um, there was no understanding of signal and response. Uh, the new science of signal transduction, following environment, that wasn't there. Nobody had any idea about those damn signals and stuff like that. So when I tried to, to, when I showed them my research that how the environment was controlling this, one of the reasons why they ignored it is because there was no concept in the world of how this could happen. There wasn't anything in their biology to say, oh yeah, I can see how that mechanism can happen. So I, I had to, you know, look at where or how was this interface between environmental signals and, and a specific activity? So that took me to the cell membrane. And the reason why it took me to cell membrane is because bacteria, which have no internal organelles really, uh, have a cell membrane. And uh, this is uh, their equivalent of the all the functions, digestion, respiration, and nervous system, the membrane. So it was like, And it was interesting because when I first looked at the membrane, you have to recognize this. You can't see a membrane in a microscope, light microscope. You can only see an electron microscope. It's so thin. So first of all, until the 1940s, late 40s, nobody even knew all cells have membranes. And then we find out all cells have the same morphological structure, the same type of membrane. So it's a common thing from the very beginning of life up to the most complex. So I'm looking and I say, well, obviously the membrane is somewhere between the environment and the inside of the cell. And I started to look at the structure. The first structure of the membrane that gives it its, its border characteristic, it's a regimented molecule. It's called phospholipids. And they're all regimented, all lined up like a crystal. As a matter of fact, the definition of the cell membrane is a liquid crystal because the phos- are all crystalline in their array. And as phospholipids, they have fat, oil, lipid in the middle of a three-layer structure. And it's the oil layer that is the barrier because then stuff in water, the aquarium can't get through the oil layer. So the skin of the cell is a barrier, but now you got a problem. If nothing can get in or nothing can get out, you can't have a viable cell. You have to take food in, get rid of waste. So I said, well, how's that work? And see, in the beginning in the microscopy, all you could see was the lipid stuff. So, conventional biology especially at the time when i was doing this was oh the membrane that's like plastic wrap that holds the cytoplasm together so that was the big function and then if only they got holes in that because stuff can get through uh so it's like a perforated plastic wrap uh, and that was the limit of what they thought about the membrane so when i'm looking at the membrane I'm trying to figure out and it's, first of all of course it's just that that crystalline array of lipids but then i recognize there are proteins built into the membrane and what was interesting, because at that time, a new term started to show up in very diverse articles I was reading, the term IMP. And I'd read this article on this, and it's like, oh, IMP's involved. And I'd read this article on something different. It's like, IMP's. IMP's are integral membrane proteins. In other words, in that lattice of lipids, there are proteins. <clears throat> there are two basic classes of proteins. So I started to focus, and the classes of proteins are called receptors, and the other class is called effectors. Receptors built into the skin. Oh, what a coincidence. The fractal structure of life, a human is a fractal image of a cell. Our cell membrane, our skin, has our receptors built into it. Eyes, ears, nose, taste, touch, pain, temperature, pressure. We're like the cell. We have receptors to do what? Read the environment. I say, yeah, but once you read the environment as a stimulus, you have to have an output. <laughs> Otherwise, nothing. So there's a complementary set of proteins. I'll give an example of one, because it's major, called a channel, which can be closed and nothing can get through a membrane, but the channel can open up, making a pore where specific things go in. <clears throat> so when the membrane just had lipids in it, it's a non-conductor. Nothing goes through the lipid. When you put the channels in there, it's not a full conductor. It only lets in what the channels let in. If it's a potassium channel, only potassium's getting in. A sodium channel, only sodium's getting in. So it's not a non conductor. It's not a full conductor. It's a semiconductor. And the two classes of proteins, the receptors which read the environmental signal, And remember, when a protein reads a signal, it changes its shape. So when there's no signal, the protein has shape A. But when the environmental signal shows up, it causes the protein to change into shape B, which engages the channel to go into its shape B, which is open. So the signal changes the protein of the receptor, which couples to the channel, changes the shape of the channel, so a signal is translated into a response. Stimulus coming in the receptor response coming out the channel now the part that i was sitting there and my whole life changed is after 10 years of working on this how is the cell membrane going to do this cuz everybody's so in the genes i'm working on this and like this one day i changed the definitions as i just started to write the membrane is a liquid crystal semiconductor with receptors and channels and then i realized gate is a synonym for receptor so I sat there and I go, the membrane is a liquid crystal semiconductor with gates and channels. I said, oh. I said in 1985, I just read that. I said, where the heck did I read that? I just got my first Macintosh and I got a book from Radio Shack and It it's called Understanding Your Microprocessor. And there it was in the introduction, a chip is a crystal semiconductor with gates and channels. I go, wow, what a coincidence. And then it hit me. It's not a coincidence, it's a structural parallel. The function of every part of that is functionally identical to what goes on in a silicon chip. And I realized, oh my god, it's a stimulus response, it's a perception unit. It reads an environmental signal and sends a very specific signal into the cell. The specific signal resonates with those proteins That, remember, the proteins change shape in response to a signal. Well, if I group a bunch of proteins to respond to the same signal and send that signal in, those proteins begin to function. Respiration, digestion, excretion. And all of a sudden, oh, my geez, the membrane is an information process. That's a fact of mechanic biology, cells, molecules, no doubt. That this information processor uh, has inputs and outputs, IOs. (laughs) that's the foundation that's a bit then i started to realize oh my god these bits in the membrane each represent a different perception this is a response to glucose this this unit's responding to calcium i go oh i'm reading the environment and as a result of the receptors changing shape coupling to the effectors sending a signal in i'm going to create a behavior cascade of proteins responding to that signal i just sent in that will make the response necessary for my survival. Oh, geez. (laughs) The cell is a programmable chip. The nucleus with genes, that's what's being called up by epigenetics. And then epigenetics doesn't just activate the reading of the gene. It can rewrite the expression of the gene. So the nucleus is not read-only, old-fashioned genetics, read-only. That's your gene. That's your life. No, no. It's read right write. I can pick the gene and change it and tailor it to fit the environment that I'm working in right there. So it's like, holy crap, this is completely different than genes turning on and off. <laughs> it's like, but this was like. Years before epigenetics, even so, I was really into this. Uh, and then I want to add this part because this is so exciting, even beyond that. That right away is exciting, okay? So, I say, Well, what is a receptor effector or receptor channel complex? Well, I give it a name, a perception unit. Yeah, it's perceiving glucose at that one or calcium, whatever. So, the units of perception, I go, Yeah, and what's consciousness? Perception, and what's evolution? More perception. I say, Ah. All of a sudden, it's like, oh my Jesus, this is the mathematical foundation for evolution. This is the math of evolution. Why? What's consciousness? Well, I don't know what consciousness is. It's maybe microtubules, which is not true because half the biomass on the planet doesn't have microtubules, but sure as heck has consciousness. The relevance is consciousness is the ability to make a response to the environment that will keep you alive or advance you in some form that the receptor-effector complexes are built into the membrane, and then this comes about. It says, well, then the more perception units you have, the more evolution you have. I go, yes, and then this is the cool part now. The membrane structure, the crystalline structure of those lipids is a fixed diameter. And the diameter of the membrane is almost exactly the same size diameter as the protein. What's the point? If perception units are proteins, I can't stack them on top of each other because the, the diameter is limited by the crystal. Point, you want to add more perception units, you have to add them laterally <laughs> in the plane of a membrane, a two-dimensional plane, because that's the, the thickness is defined. So the, it's a defined plane. And then I go, what does that mean? The more surface area, the more intelligent the system. And that surface area is the metric of evolution. At first, bacteria had only limited surface area. Why? Because they were invertebrates. They had a capsule on the outside. It says you can only put so much membrane on the inside, you can't put any more membrane in there. I say, well, if you were making the smartest bacterium by putting in the most perception units and you fill up the membrane that you can put inside the capsule, evolution stopped. It did, but it changed paradigms. Now that I made the smartest unit, The idea is to bring the units together, more bacteria in a community where each one is sharing its knowledge with the other ones. That led to the first organization called Biofilms. Biofilms are communities of bacteria that encapsulate themselves in a membrane so they can control the environment. But they're different populations, some aerobic, some anaerobic, some doing this, some doing that, ah, in a community, Their collective work provided the survival of the community. But as individuals, they couldn't get any smarter because the membrane limitation inside the capsule said that's all you got. But the membrane that they put around themselves in a biofilm later became the membrane of the community. And all of a sudden, an amoeba formed. Where the hell did the amoeba come from? And the answer was a biofilm that specialized itself, that took the genetics of all the different bacteria and put it into one double membrane-like bacteria structure called the nucleus. Even though mitochondria as bacteria and DNA are still in the cell, the other organelles were represented by other other forms of bacteria. But we keep the genetics of them, don't have the bacteria. Now we have the membrane. I say, oh, so a bacterium can only have so much membrane. But an amoeba with an internal skeleton can have thousands of times more surface area and therefore thousands of times smarter than the, se- the bacterium. And then I guess what? And th- th- we're leading to something, Daniel. I'm getting there. <laughs> Even the amoeba reaches a size that can't get any bigger. And the reason is this. The membrane has to hold the contents of the cytoplasm. But the p- amount of pressure, <laughs> the more cytoplasm you put in, could cause the membrane to rip. I equated to like a, a balloon with water in it. If you only put a small amount of water in a balloon, we could throw it around all day. But if you put a large amount of water in a balloon and then try and throw it, the, the consequence of that that mass pushing on the membrane will cause it to rip. Amoeba has it's got its self filled up. Guess what? It couldn't evolve anymore once you made the smartest amoeba. And I said then what they do? I said exactly as the bacteria they joined in the community, and all the plants and organisms that we can see, by definition, including ourselves, are communities of amoebas, and their integration is to share awareness because it's smarter than any single amoeba, and then I say, guess what? Then we get to the human, and we're almost back to the story of the bacterium. There's a capsule <laughs> that says, if you're going to put membrane in here, you can only put so much, And guess what, all the folds, the gyri and the sulky, if you spread it out as surface area, that's where the intelligence is. And that's why we have all the folds in here, is to put as much surface area in a brain that you can put in a human skull, and then smartest human, evolution stopped. Next level, the community of humans coming together as a community of cells to create a higher organism. And we are in that evolutionary moment right now where we're seeing a breakdown of the borders, a breakdown of what was separate parts of a world because the nervous system, the internet, is hooking all the cells together. And as the cells get hooked together, they start to recognize we're one community of cells. Killing another human is, is the equivalent of autoimmune disease where one cell kills another cell. That leads, that's disease. <laughs> The evolution in front of us is community, and you're seeing a breakdown of the structure, and I applaud it. I applaud it like crazy. Why? Because science has recognized we're facing the sixth mass extinction of life on this planet. And five previous mass extinctions, the last one being the loss of the dinosaurs, life was thriving, and in some event, boom, blew it out, and then 70 to 90% of life got lost. And I'm gonna tell you today, We are in the sixth mass extinction, not flirting with it, we're in it. I say, why? Well, for example, they took a survey of how many animals were on the planet in 1970, and they just did the survey, two-thirds of that population have disappeared. They only got one-third the number of animals left on this planet. Just uh, two months ago, uh, Germany released statistics that for 28 years they were studying insect populations in their national parks. And last year they said the population is down 75%. The fish in the ocean, 90% gone since 1950, current estimate 2048, no fish in the ocean, overfishing, pollution, destroying the breeding grounds, etc. And I say, oh my God, we are creating the sixth mass extinction. And as we break the web of life underneath us through the way we are living, we are threatening our own existence. So the simple reality is this the culture we have been living in has been a destructive culture. It's based on competition of fitness and survival and a struggle. When this is a a misperception of evolution because evolution, there was a garden. There was indeed a garden here before we got here. We evolved in this garden. What's the relevance? We are part of the garden. You never got separate from this garden. And a garden, by definition, is not a battleground. A garden is community working together in harmony and the planet has been a battleground, but now to survive, we have to recognize that all humans are cells in a larger organism called humanity. And what you're seeing is a breakdown of the structure that has separated us and the evolution of a new structure that will provide the support for all beings on this planet and that is our evolutionary destination. Whether we make it or not, hey, other civilizations were here and didn't make it, so uh, there's no uh, thing that says we must make it. And uh, I'm, of course, being very hopeful because programs like yours, the audience that we have on this program right now are people that have knowledge, and knowledge is power, but the general public is sorely lacking in knowledge and i say what's the relevance i say well knowledge is power and the corollary a lack of knowledge is a lack of power the people on this planet have been disempowered by not being given the right understanding of who they are how they function and what they can create They're, they're without a program we've all been programmed and that's where the chips got their program and that's where life comes from programming and that programming I, I'm running on in this because I, I want to tell you everything. <laughs> uh, go ahead.
1: It's a really fun evolutionary story, the way that you're telling it. It's, you know, I'm, uh, de Chardon and Barbara Marks Hubbard and Arthur Kessler's whole ons and like, self-organization theory are all, you know, included in there. And when we yes. think about so um, you know, increasing the amount of surface area for the amount of complexity of parallel processing until you reach a structural limit and then going into the next layer of holonic inclusion, right? Yeah. Which has to have some kind of parallel processing across holons, which is why you get organelles within cells, within tissues, within, right? And that is kind of the the perennial philosophy's idea of the great chain of being. And you're speaking that the next step in the great chain is you know, we kind of got to tribes, and then after tribes, we got to command and control hierarchies that were um, harm externalizing in mass. And so yes. now we're at a great mass extinction. What is the next step of self-organization that has real, uh, you know, effective complexity of organization beyond tribe? Humanity hasn't got there yet. That's kind of the next topic, right? Um,
2: yeah. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> Dino, Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I you know it's actually core to things that uh, we're working on with the future of macroeconomics and the future of governance, future of infrastructure and future of new epistemologies and worldviews is how do we have yeah. uh, how do we have anti-rival risks, symbiotic coordination, coherence, collaboration of people at a global scale that you know, how do we transcend the Dunbar number while having that level of collaborative dynamic? But, but I'm curious. I want to go back just no. to your to your scientific model for a moment, because when you say maximizing surface area, we we know gyri looks like that in the cerebral cortex, right? We we can see the amoeba example, um, but it seems like we've got to say surface area multiplied by some other dynamics, because otherwise, I would say a male silverback who weighs 400 pounds is a more complex organism than a human Homo sapien female who's 100 pounds. Because uh,
2: what's the brain size on that that uh, that gorilla?
1: If I'm just looking at brain, but if I'm looking at total number of cells and the surface uh, area. Oh no! Well, that's uh, what see,
2: that the whole the number of cells story goes awkward when you say, well, look at a dinosaur. <laughs> right. Dinosaurs has got cells beyond anything you could ever imagine, but you know what happened there? And here, this is an important part. There's there's the neurological element. And the body, which supports a neurological element, the brain says, "Get food." The body has to get food. The brain says, "Do this." The body has to do this. So the body is like, um, uh, you know, carrying out the the administration of all this stuff from the brain. Okay. What happened is, when the administration outgrows the awareness, it, it puts a drain on the system. It's got to, the system got to support this massive administration <laughs> with only a small amount of awareness. <laughs> And at some point, it can't control it if the environment is not stable. If the environment's stable and you get it to run, it will continue running. But if the environment undergoes a change and you're gonna try and change a mass of administration behind you, uh, you may not be able to do it effectively enough to keep the system alive in a different environment. And and so it really becomes important to recognize, look, a a five-inch lizard, is the blueprint of a 50-foot lizard. (laughs) It's the same blueprint. In the leg of the five-foot lizard, the leg will do this. I say, how many muscles? I say, 10 muscles. I say, how many nerves? One nerve. And I say, okay, now I have a 50-foot dinosaur, the leg is this big, and it does the same movement. I say, well, how many muscles? I say, 100 million. I say, and how many nerves? One. The dinosaur body got big but the brain stayed at the small level it was a distortion of the evolution we were, we were building body but not intelligence and, and as but if the environment was very supportive no problem but when the environment changed uh that massive amount of cytoplasm and stuff just could not accommodate adaptation fast enough to keep it alive so what was lost, I said the body was this giant thing and the brain was this little tiny thing in the front. Now it's different. Now the brain is big and the rest of the body is conforming to supporting the brain.
0: Yeah,
1: It was a track of
2: evolution. It was a track and it worked because as the environment you, was stable.
1: As you mentioned, stable environment, it's all hill climbing rather than valley crossing, in which case you don't need that much um search for novel environments, you need the ability to exploit very well a, a exploit, exploitation dynamic that's understood. And yes. then obviously a mammal was little body, lots more adaptive capacity, and this movement towards more valley crossing then really has found a zenith in humans who then became who niche creators in every environment, right? Which is this very...
2: absolutely. Uh, But life has done that. There's every environment on this planet has life, whether it's in the volcano vent or whether it's uh, a mile or two in the ice in Antarctica, there's life from there to there and it's everywhere. Life has a tendency to, to fill in the space. It's awareness and consciousness. and, uh, and, And this is why this intelligence of the system and the hierarchy of putting the community together to enhance this intelligence of the system. I mean, very interesting. There was a study, uh, uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, about uh, technology, human technology, got off the ground about 30,000 years ago. That before that so-called 30,000, they would look back at, at digs and look at you know, where Stone Age people lived, and they found the same tools for 100,000 years. Uh, and, and then about 30,000 years ago, things showed up, a wheel and a this, a, ho- you know, a, 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 a plow. And I go, well, you know, it was real interesting because when it turned up, at first, those new technologies altered things, but they lasted a long time. You know, the, the hand plow was hundreds of years. <laughs> but what happened was, the, the, uh, if you would look at the, uh, the growth uh, of our technology, 100,000 years, flat, 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 flat. And then about 30,000 years ago, started to go. And at this point, it's almost a vertical line. And interesting point, because the conventional thinking was, well, what happened 30,000 years ago where technology came in? And there were two conventional answers. One, there was a change in genetics. Two, there was a change in brain structure, which created a new function. So they go back and they try to track it down, but it was neither of those. It turns out it was density of population. That if it was just you and I having a conversation as cave people around the fire, And I said, you see that moon? I'd like to go there. Maybe we should build a rocket ship. And you go, what's a rocket ship? And they're already, we got a problem. (laughs) The reality is with just a couple of people around the campfire, I'm not gonna take an idea and do anything with it. But as you get thousands of people around, and one person has this idea, and another person has this idea, and they come together, it's like, whoa. So for example, how many different individual discoveries were required to make a computer And the answer is 50,000 individuals had to come up with some small small idea that when collectively put together could create that. 50,000 people. Well, you go back 30,000 years ago, uh, uh, and obviously there were not very dense, large populations. So there was a slow trajectory of technology. But in today, the connectivity of today's world and all that Uh, technology is changing in 24 hours. (laughs) Uh, And that is a result of group thinking uh, and and a process called emergence in quantum physics says you'll never can predict what's going to come out of these parts that are appearing right now. You can't predict that. So we're facing this future where a lot of stuff can happen and still not predictable.
1: Now your answer as to what happened 30,000 years ago is much more collaborative and less competitively oriented than the standard historical narrative which typically says uh, when population density started to get high relative to the natural resources people migrated and so they avoided each other via migration once they had migrated everywhere and there was nowhere else to go then they had to start competing militarily and that's what actually drove the development of technology was the need to actually have uh, force projection advantage over others that had force projection. And so tools were growing military first. I'm sure it was both. Um, but I'm, no, just-
2: I'm sure it is too, Daniel. Let me just add this to your story because this is true. I, uh, uh, and what's very interesting is the further north or south you go from the equator, the more the technology evolved. And right. the simple reason is this. You don't need just- a technology in the equator. The, the stuff's growing on the trees. You don't have to do anything. Just pick it. Okay. But as you start to get into temperate climates where there are winter and growing seasons and how are you going to protect yourself and what are you going to eat? All of a sudden it required a lot more adaptiveness to the environment, which was learning. Yeah. And, and that's where the separation of why the, the, the tropical countries were, they didn't need this technology. The technology was a result of need. <laughs> I got, I got to survive in the ice. What the hell am I going to do? So yeah, that's a big part of the evolution is to recognize that the environment is not hospitable, right. as it is in in the ecosystem of the equator. Uh, then you must have a technology to survive in that environment, and that what that was a good driver of technology. But I as also agree with you that it was competitive, right? Uh, and that was a destructive character. So one positive, one negative.
1: It's competitive and collaborative, right? It would end up being the Kim chem- the. Competition of tribes against tribes rather than people against people. So it was your ability to collaborate with an in group against an out group that ended up being the selection criteria.
2: Absolutely. And it changed the whole dynamic of everything. Uh, and it also changed the meaning of competition because, as I write in my book, um, the original term competition, which has been bastardized, the original term competition meant to strive together. That meant like I was a player of tennis, which I'm not and I wanted to better my game, I'm not gonna play with a weaker player because I'm not gonna gain any uh, you know, ability over that. So I will compete, but we're striving together. Why? Because they're trying to improve their game, I'm trying to improve my game. I'm not trying to kill them and they're not trying to kill me. So the original competition had nothing about that antagonism in it, but it had everything about we, if we work together, we can get there faster and 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 like uh elon musk who is one of my heroes of today um look he he took his company plans and he and he opened it up these are the patents here take a look at my patents you can have that you want to use them go ahead and use them it's like that is new thinking new business new corporations conscious business because he knew damn well if other people make improvements his car is still going to be you know, leading the whole thing because he'll he'll add whatever he needs when somebody else adds that. So basically, the idea of keeping a secret, which is the old version, I compete against you, and if I drive you out of business, good for me. In this case, is no. If other people make electric cars, his business is better. Ah, but they're still competitors.
1: So, and there's there's many tangents that have been opened up that I would love to go down that would be really fun but I only have a few more minutes of your time and you mentioned one thing that um, I think is both really interesting, valuable, and unclear uh, yes. to most people which has to do with placebo and nocebo dynamics. Yes. And I specifically want to address the difference between specific and general placebo and nocebo dynamics. So if we say when someone is thinking positively so they feel better because they're releasing dopamine and oxytocin and vasopressin
2: let, let me clarify that because it, some people <laughs> and this is where the issue of well i tried positive thinking and it didn't work so I, I don't want it to say that everybody who thinks positive is uh, is automatically now going to have some positive benefit because that's not true it's not that positive thinking can't do it but there's another factor and that's why i just wanted to stop right there so okay positive thinking is good.
1: Well, and so if if we look at a complex systems view, we say there's a lot of different causal elements and we can't actually even define all of them. So we talk about the system disposition and obviously if I've got mold in my house and I'm breathing in mold mycotoxins or I'm breathing in VOC, that's affecting the chemistry of my blood that's the environment for my cells that can affect their behavior and their epigenetics independent of my conscious thinking and emotional state. But then my diet also can and my emotions also can. So those they all have to be taken as affecting system disposition, right?
2: Yes and no. Okay. Okay. I wish I I should have planned this in advance, but I I can't do it. So right now I'm going to use my hand. The the screen is a chart. And this, listen, I'm trying to figure out which way you would see it on the screen. This is a chart of consciousness, zero consciousness, 100% consciousness. We're not there, but let's just say we have zero and 100. And then I say factors affecting life. And that runs this way, meaning... If I have no consciousness, every damn thing out here is going to affect me as my consciousness gets higher then i 'm less the, the outside stuff is less influential until there 's a point if you become fully conscious, the outside stuff is irrelevant but we're, you know we 're not necessarily there, and i don 't know what that would be like fully it would be godlike for sure, but we 're on that tra- trajectory, and the trajectory is this. As we raise our consciousness, we are less affected by those environmental things that affect other people. Uh, let me give uh, one story, number one. Uh, of course, there's always that understanding that if you live under high tension, high power lines, that this is an environment that is really not good for your health. Statistics, yes, this is absolutely true. Families that live under these high tension lines have worth worse health outcomes than families not living under high tension lines but then they were trying to find out but there are a lot of people under high tension lines that have no adverse effects (laughs) it's like they're doing really great under there and the question is what was the difference between those that were really not affected by it and those that were profoundly affected by the high high what's different about them stress stress opens the system and like perforates the the, the, the energy around us, uh, like in, in Kirlian photography where you can see uh, an energy field around structure uh, that uh, an individual in distress or dis-ease uh, has perforations in this energy field. Uh, and, and the relevance about that is, yeah, when we are not in harmony, we're perforated we're affected by the environment much more that's the same chart that i just said when you start to get harmony the environment is not even relevant to you i, I use a video that i got from discover tv uh, uh on uh, fundamentalists uh in the south that work themselves up into a religious ecstasy and they start speaking tongues and but they play with poisonous snakes now their snake hand was and uh, actually, about four months ago, one of them died <laughs> and made the news, of course. But most of them have no adverse effects when get bit by a snake. That, that's not the one I want to talk about. Listen to this. this. Some of them, and this is called Testify, and Testify is their belief system. They trust God so much, they will do something no normal human being would do, like play with poisonous snakes. But the ones that were really cool in the video that I use, they drink strychnine poison and toxic doses with a firm belief, with a firm belief that God protects them and they have no adverse consequences from strychnine poison. Now that's taking belief up to that where I said on that chart, that's taking the belief way up toward that part. And you go, well, that sounds totally weird and all kinds of stuff like that. And then I go back and then I have to start off with A, the concept of epigenetics, B, quantum physics i go why is quantum physics relevant because from day one 1925 quantum physicists recognize one of the prime directives in quantum physics is that the universe is immaterial and that we are creating this expression with our consciousness i go that's it <laughs> Go back to quantum physics, the most valid science on this planet today, and the emphasis is consciousness is unfolding this whole thing. Now the question is, where's your consciousness? Well, that's where the looseness comes into this picture. That's where all the things that you don't want to happen necessarily do happen. But as you increase that level of consciousness, do you need to even eat food? Not necessarily, because we can trap energy from the environment, uh, and that's through uh, the melanin in our skin, the crystals that absorb the EMF fields around us, uh, translate that into biological energy. Uh, but I wouldn't suggest that you just say, oh, I could live without food, and then walk off into the desert thinking you're going to live without food. That, no. <laughs> you, you have to go back and realize you've been programmed your whole entire life to eat. If you don't eat, the program is you will die. And uh, as a result, uh, you really have to change a lot of psychology and consciousness to even get to that state. But what was the point? If I can drink strychnine poison, then all of a sudden it says, but basically, can I be immune to all the stuff that's going on? And I say, what about those people under the power lines? I said, the difference between them, the amount of stress. Those that were under stress who had negative impact from the field, and those that had no stress had no impact from the field and all of a sudden it goes back to that energy that surrounds us it's it's a barrier euphemistically new agey surround yourself with white light and i'm going oh that's an energy field if you're in harmony your energy field is very strong you can walk across hot coals but don't get in the middle of a walk and then have a question of whether you can do it or not because the moment you doubt you will instantly get burned. Uh, uh, And uh, drink the strychnine. I sure as hell, with all my belief and belief, I'm not drinking the strychnine because I'm not that sure (laughs) of my own belief enough to do that. But the reality is, it can be done. And and the issue is who are we? We have been limited by our beliefs, our perceptions. If we believe we're a victim, we become a victim. Uh, uh, Henry Ford said it. If you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right. And that's, that's really where it comes down to. Now, how far can you push it? And I said, if I have full consciousness, we, we'd have a whole different conversation right here. But I, I, I'm on my way toward more consciousness uh, and having a much healthier and happier life. Uh, no physician, no doctor, 30, 40 years now uh, is, is no, I don't need this right now. Uh, and why? Because there's a way of living in harmony which enhances your vitality. And this is important work that you're involved with to help those people because I said, if they're not up here on that consciousness level and they're anywhere down here, then anything that will support and enhance their life should be considered to support them until such consciousness arises. And until then, then by all means, take advantage of any kind of support that you can be offered to enhance your vitality and your cognition and the work that you're doing, for example. This is
1: important okay. work. So because I I think that this is such an um, important and problematic topic, I want to offer back a, um, an alternate hypothesis regarding placebo dynamics. <clears throat> can you still hear me?
2: I'm trying to get it
1: okay i think we're back um so i want to offer an alternate hypothesis that i would say is um going to be has less potential but is also going to be easier to accept in terms of uh the data supporting the hypothesis i want to hear your take on it um if that's all right so if i think about the you know the construction you just shared i would say well that placebo dynamics are mediated via some type of dynamics at the level of quantum mechanics and that as and that quantum mechanics actually has uh is a level at which there's an interface between something like consciousness and physics and that there could be increasingly coherent consciousness dynamics that could increase physics more potently that's kind of like the primary idea the whole field of metaphysics, right? And there's a bunch of different uh, possibilities for the physics that could reconcile that. Yes. What I'm going to say about that is I don't know whether that's true or not true. I, of course, hope that it's true. I like the idea. Um, I don't have data that I can say is adequately compelling. I do have data that's pretty compelling regarding some placebo dynamics, and it's not one mechanism. It seems to be several. And so I, I just want to offer this construction, because it's going to be the construction that's in the mind of most of the people listening, and I'd like to see what the closure here is. on on your. So we look at some studies on placebo, like the studies that were done with placebo inhalers and albuterol, and they found that when we looked at subjective and objective metrics, so we looked at did the person feel better after the placebo inhaler versus the real albuterol inhaler, but then we also looked at objective metrics, which was blood saturation levels and bronchiodilation and those types of things we saw that with the uh, with the people who didn't get anything they you know had a hard time breathing from asthma they didn't get anything they subjectively felt shitty and objectively they had constricted airways and their blood saturation dropped the people who got the albuterol inhaler felt better subjectively and their objective metrics changed they had real bronchiodilation and blood oxygen saturation the people who got the fake inhaler but thought it was a real inhaler felt better subjectively, but their objective metrics corresponding to bronchodilation didn't change. So it was actually changing perceptual processes in their brain rather than changing the underlying mechanism. So it was actually affecting you know, um, sensory cortex dynamics. So they felt better. And we saw similar ones with some of the studies done on angina, chest pain stuff, where it didn't actually open up arteries, but some of the pain went down because it was inducing increase in endogenous opioids in the brain. And so there we'd say, okay, so this was a placebo where it makes sense that top-down belief could be affecting those types of like opioid, beta-enkephalan, whatever, you know, brain sensory stuff. Why it works so well with pain? Now, in that one, I wouldn't expect it to actually affect the underlying pathophysiology that much because the mechanism that it seems to be working through is more the sensing of the pathophysiology rather than the actual pathophysiology. Now, in another one, say I'm looking at cancer, and I say, if someone is stressed out and they feel shitty because they're worried about cancer, they're worried about finance or whatever, and their cortisol is high, their ACTH is high, their pregnenolone is all shunting from DHEA into cortisol, so the ratio goes off, which changes genetic transcription, which increases carcinogenesis and changes oncogene expression, then I'd say, well, getting cortisol down And just getting sympathetic to parasympathetic tone in better place is going to make cancer generally less likely, right? And it's going to make health and regeneration better. But I wouldn't think very specifically, right? Like sympathetic to parasympathetic getting better would make less likelihood for autoimmune and neurodegenerative and cancer and heart disease because it's just relevant to regenerative process comprehensively, but it wouldn't be like believing in this specific thing, getting better, would really address that specific thing. It would address, generally, the regenerative processes of the body doing better. It seems like that level, everybody can get on board with, right? Everybody, anybody, any MD can see the studies on positive thinking and mindfulness and say sympathetic parasympathetic ratio changing, cortisol DHEA changing, less stress hormones, stress hormones have effects on disease progression, cool, but so, so one that doesn't require quantum mechanics, and it, but it's also not super specific. That's just kind of an endocrinology neuroendocrine effect, and so you're totally fine with that. You just think that we can go further than that as well.
2: Yeah. Uh, first of all, let me let me tell you that the that life as I said comes from the structure of a protein being altered by an environmental field, and as a result changing from conformation A to conformation B, which is a movement which generates life, okay? And um, it's always been looked at, oh, it, it's like a Newtonian mechanism with positive and negative charges that change this thing. Uh, there was a paper by uh, a couple, Prophistic and Goodman in uh, Nature, uh, and, and what they were trying to do was predict uh, the movement from conformation A to conformation B of a molecule that rotates. Based on the charge, and they applied all the, uh, the the they applied an approach using Newtonian physics with charges and localization and stuff like that. Turned out, it had nothing to do with that at all. They were unable to predict the conformational sure. stages. That it turned out that it was quantum mechanical effects that sure. uh, the system, the proteins, respond to quantum fields. Uh, and all of a sudden that opens up the game, because if it only responds to Newtonian thing, then of course it's just the chemicals and things around you, but once you open it up to the quantum field, then all of a sudden it says, oh my God, uh, a quantum field could, uh, you know, you could walk into a field and be affected by this because your proteins read that field, okay? Now, but the interesting part about this is How are you evaluating? Well, first you're evaluating on the physiology of the person and you're evaluating on how they feel about it. (laughs) Now, there's two minds. There's the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. Now, this is where, if you don't get this right, the whole thing doesn't work anymore. The conscious mind is the one connected to your personal identity. Okay, And it's primarily prefrontal cortex right back here. The significance about that is the conscious mind. Uh, the quality of a conscious mind is creativity, and as a result, imagination, wishes, desires, aspirations. These are creative thoughts. Okay, the subconscious mind, in contrast, has no creativity. Really, it's a very minimal amount of creativity. It's primarily uh, uh, record playback. It's habit. That's basic. Instincts and habits are built into the subconscious. Now the issue is this: the two minds operate independ- interdependently. <laughs> I can have a feeling in my conscious mind which in no way is influenced by influencing the subconscious mind which is the one that's controlling the biology itself like the muscles are under the control of the subconscious mind the functions of the digestive system are being mediated by the subconscious mind uh uh, and and so i'm going to say here's the problem if you're dealing with a person's conscious mind they can say whatever the heck they feel like at that moment but it doesn't necessarily involve what's going on in the subconscious mind. Uh, and as neuroscientists have evaluated, we are only really controlling our lives 5% of the time. Our cognitive behavior is controlled 5% by the conscious creativity. That 95% of our cognitive activity is controlled by the programs in the subconscious mind, because they are indeed programs. Okay, And the relevance about that is, It depends on which mind is operating the system uh, to determine the outcome. And you say, well, I I consciously have a positive thought as I call placebos. Yeah, sure. I say, but if your subconscious mind doesn't support the outcome of that positive thought and it's a five to 95% ratio, I don't care how much positive thinking you're going to do. The subconscious mind is not going to do anything with that. Okay. But in contrast, when the, conscious mind and the subconscious mind are in harmony with each other in regard to the program and the subconscious supporting the wish and the desire of the conscious then that is an unstoppable combination that will lead to uh, in in the quantum physics concept the uh the conscious creation of whatever you are but you have to remember now there's a, a dynamic between two minds which one is the one are you working with And the idea is my conscious mind can say any damn thing it wants, but my subconscious mind's working a program. And as I said, 95% of my life experiences are coming from subconscious programs. Uh, And yet, when you can get that conscious mind to get in there and override it, if you can get that conscious mind to support a a belief in the subconscious that can give you a healing, then that's an open pathway for placebo effect. If your conscious mind has all the wishes and desires, but your subconscious mind says, I can't buy that, (laughs) then I don't care how many wishes and desires and positive thinking, you're not necessarily going to experience the consequence of what we've been talking about.
1: So you're talking about a a congruency phenomena, a coherency phenomena, that the conscious mind is actually congruent and coherent with other things that we call mind and self, and that the phenomena will be a result of maybe the, the total coherence that's involved the total surface yes. area of consciousness that's involved, so to speak. <laughs> um, I, it, I'll, I'll say it one other way. Cause I think, you know, the, <clears throat> I think there's maybe no topic that people who come from a formal scientific epistemology think of as magical thinking more than this, right? Like this is the gateway to every other kind of magical thinking um, is the overextension of placebo effect in that view. And yet it's not, it's not an unreasonable consideration. And so I'm going to state a way that I think both addresses the modern way of thinking about it and the hypothesis that as consciousness increases, external influences could decrease because there's the, so if I think about the person under the line, under the power line, who's more affected and less affected, rather than say it's because stress opens up their field to effect, I could say stress is already affecting them negatively and it's, and it probably if they eat sugar and if they have mold mold in their house and if they have mercury in their mouth, it's the total ratio of syntropic and entropic forces acting on the system that are going to determine the integrity of the system. I agree with their psychological stresses, the physiologic stresses, including the EMFs, are all going to be part of the syntropic-entropic ratio. Now One thing I think maybe you're saying is, as consciousness increases, could it become a larger percentage, could endogenously generated forces become a larger percentage of the total chemistry of the blood that the cells are responding to, that are modulating whatever other external things one is being exposed to, to where, I mean, in decision theory, we talk about moving the locus of control more internally, and you're talking about that not just at a psychological level, but a physiologic level. And it seems like to at least some extent, the answer is yes, right? That there is at least some extent to which one could have a internal locus of control that was affecting the chemistry of their blood and the cellular biology more. If there's an upper bound to that or not, I think is a fascinating question for us to explore.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I don't know upper bounds. I could, uh, uh, there's a range of everything. Everything's a bell shaped curve you wanna look at it. And I'm gonna talk about the center of that curve and just say that we are very powerful people. Our belief systems disempower us. Our perceptions that we are driving our chemistry and our beliefs with, our our, our chemicals and uh, and physiological uh, communications uh, in a stressful situation will will stop the growth of this system because stress automatically puts you in a protective posture. And then the things that you needed – to be healthy, a good operating immune system, all of a sudden it's not operating, then we have a problem. You're not replacing hundreds of billions of cells every day, you're lagging, why? Because you're not putting enough of your available energy into a growth mechanism because you're concerned and all that, fine. Uh, how does it work? Well, the, the simple understanding that we gave, of how does this um, uh, affect the chemistry? And, and the fact is this, that neurological cells are are not uh, you, we say neurons like okay, these are all neurons. What we now know every neuron is functionally structurally different than every other neuron it 's like an immune system not not all lymphocytes are targeted for the same things. matter it 's only a small number targeted for something, and there are so many of them they 're all targeted to different things okay so uh, what we really have to 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 recognize is that um, our ability to create life starts with vibration of thought. And the, and this is the important part. Again, uh, our nervous system in conventional neurology is based on, uh, on um, action potentials. Where's the language? It's action potentials. No, that is not the language. What they're missing is at a finer, higher resolution, every action potential has a brush border, a very fine little spikes ultra small little spikes that neurophysiologists when i was at the university they use white out they, they call it noise <laughs> they they, they clean the line so it had the beautiful shape of a action potential and i asked my friend who was a serious one of the leaders in neuroscience at that time i said what are you raising he said the noise i said what's the noise he said that's channels opening and closing i <laughs> looked at him i started to laugh i thought That's the message. (laughs) It's the message is in the vibration of the channels opening and closing. The carrier wave for the message is the action potential. It's the signals, as I said, the signals on the cell are channels opening and closing, each with a different vibrational frequency. So there's a music coming from the membrane when the channels are opening and closing. What's the point? That vibration is part of the field that will activate the receptors on neurons that are in harmony with that vibration. So I can have 100 billion neurons, play one signal in the field, and pull out this neuron over here because it's the only one with an antenna that is resonant with that vibrational frequency. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my god, that's what's so powerfully different about the human chips computer versus our our, uh, silicon-based ones, is that our computers respond not just to chemistry they respond to vibration Uh, and the relevance about that means then you don't have to have wired inputs all i have to do is send a signal in the broadcast in the field and any cell that is in harmony with any part of that signal will be engaged and it's like lightning (sighs) the cells will come together in a coherent form and create a, a consciousness out of it what's the beautiful part a computer with no wired inputs wired outputs yeah i want to take the signal and and turn it into biology do i need to wire the inputs i go no what's the significance half the half the resistance in the system is gone when you don't have to wire any inputs you can just broadcast a frequency in the field and this has been recognized that there are different frequencies that have different functions on cells this is not new i'm i back in 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 the 80s i was using a research in current science science nature uh, Journal of Physiology, all these different things. And what I was showing them was that in all these papers, they showed that very specific vibrational frequencies control very specific functions of the cell. Oh, my God. DNA synthesis, RNA synthesis, protein synthesis, morphogenesis, differentiation. All of these were tied to key signatures. And, and all of a sudden I say, because our conventional allopathic model is Newtonian-based, we look at chemistry as the communication. I go, chemistry is communication, but it's not as efficient <laughs> in communication. As a matter of fact, uh, in, in a paper uh, from uh, physics in, in London, uh, McClare uh, compared the efficiency of a signal sent by vibration resonance versus a signal sent by chemistry and revealed that a vibrational resonance was 100 times more efficient mm-hmm. in relaying a signal than was chemistry because chemistry loses a lot of energy with heat of reaction. <laughs> uh, and so the signal being carried is lost in a large part by the heat given off, which is wasted energy when the chemicals bind. You So know, uh, resonance has no loss.
1: Ah. You're, as you're looking at how many channels are involved in the communication dynamics of biology so you're looking at you know endocrine communication and all the different kinds of chemical communication but then also the kind of voltage electrical communication but then as you're mentioning viral communication plasmid style communication and now ir biofield style communication which the fields of optogenetics and, you know, there's a few current fields that are starting to formalize this a little bit more. And you think about all those different communication channels happening simultaneously and overlappingly. It just starts, I mean, it's fucking amazing, right? Like the, the communication complexity is fucking amazing. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, you know what it is? It's a, it's a four year transform. Massive amount of information, but you can pull out a signal based on the receptors that you have out of the noise comes signal Uh, and this is the intelligence part it says well there's so much noise in here yeah but if my receptor only picks up this vibrational frequency it's not going to be blinded by all this other stuff and so it's interesting because the receptors on the surface of the cell are engaging in in a Fourier transform to decipher information from the noise that we're in quantum physics
1: we might i would love to have a deeper conversation about biocomputation with you sometime but i've kept you longer than i said i would thank you so much for your time this was really fun this was a delight um appreciate the the you know field advancement work that you have been doing and are still doing and the energy you bring to it um if people want to buy your books and learn more get into them they can go to amazon search bruce lipton biology of belief and spontaneous evolution um and Bruce Lipton.com kind of keeps people up to date with. Uh, Thank you.
2: That's a good resource. There's lots of videos, audios, written papers, freely available to discuss topics that we've been hitting on. Great. Uh, many topics. Thank you for that, the website.
1: Bruce I will Lipton. put that in the show notes also. And, um, uh, yeah, this was a delight. Thank you so much.
2: Daniel I, I appreciate it It was so much you know more fun to talk with you than a lot of my interviews because they're all about that that other level uh, this uh, your audience yourself uh, It gives me an opportunity to talk a little bit deeper uh, uh, about the uh, molecular uh, nature and the mechanics of the field uh, uh, this is where the this is where biology is going signal transduction is the is the field not genetics signal transduction is now where it's all at how do we take those? quantum and newtonian fields and translate them into an expression that that's Mm -hmm. the beautiful front end of biology at this moment
1: i love it all right thank you my friend thanks everyone for being on
0: learn a better strategy for mental well-being? We designed a beautifully illustrated 32-page guide integrating care for your mind, brain, body, and environment into a balanced approach for a better life. Download the foundational guide to neurohacking at neurohacker.com backslash guide.